Hi, I'm Kathy Walker, teacher, feminist and parent, and this is Raise Her Up, a podcast from the GDST, the UK's leading family of girls' schools. With 19,000 students across 25 schools and the largest women's alumni network of its kind, we are experts in girls' education and everything that goes with it. Even as a teacher with over 20 years experience of working with young people and as a mum of two girls, I am still learning every day. I think we all are. In each episode, we'll welcome an expert guest who will address a different topic that, as modern parents, we are bound to encounter at some point. Our guest for this episode is award-winning entrepreneur, co-founder of the game-changing women's network Albright and GDST alumna, Debbie Wasco OBE. So much happens in life because of the amazing women that fall into your path. And that really is the story of Albright. One of the things that was going to change the conversation for women's careers, if we could build out a monster global sisterhood of amazing women who could support, upskill, connect, fund, cheer on other women, then we might go some way to changing some of those really depressing stats, which have got worse during my career lifetime, not better. From winning a young enterprise competition at the age of 16, Debbie went on to launch and sell her hugely successful online home exchange business, Love Home Swap, which she set up after seeing the classic festive film, The Holiday. In 2017, she founded women's networking platform, Albright, with her business partner, Anna Jones allowing working women across the world to connect, create and collaborate at all stages of their careers. From the GDST, this is Raise Her Up and this is Debbie Wasco. Debbie, thank you for finding the time in what must be a very busy schedule to come onto our podcast. Thank you. I'm happy to be here. So Debbie, what inspired you to set up Albright? I think all of it's really about the sweep of history and I set up my first business when I was 25. So I'd had 20 years of being a lone female founder of businesses. And I built and exited three businesses prior to Albright. Albright was really all about um, serendipity. And um, my mother always said about men that you would never meet the man of your dreams in your kitchen. And I think the same goes for life, really, that I went to a party that I almost didn't go to. And I was introduced by a friend to a woman called Anna Jones, who was the CEO of Hearst. I think because he knew only two female CEOs and thought we would be friends. And I think so much happens in life because of the amazing women that fall into your path. And that really is the story of Albright. And Anna and I did a lot of riffing on life, the universe and everything over the months to come. We're the same age. We're both Northerners. She's from York. Um, Our kids are the same age. But the topic we kept coming back to was where are all the women? And in my world of entrepreneurship, women don't raise capital. So the latest stats have dropped from the heady pre-pandemic heights of 2.17% of capital going to back a female CEO down to just a percent. Women don't invest money in backing businesses. So only 2% of investors at partner level in the UK are women, 17% of angel investors. And in Anna's world of the glamorous corner office, which I dragged her away from, um, only one in six in leadership positions in UK PLC are women. So we're doers and we like building businesses. And so Albright really was inspired by the famous Madeline quote, who's one of our heroines, which is that there's a special place in hell for women who don't help other women, because we felt very strongly that one of the things that was going to change the conversation for women's careers in the UK and beyond 
was this notion of sisterhood, that women's networks are not as good as men's, that if we could build out a monster global sisterhood of amazing women who could support, upskill, connect, fund, cheer on other women, then we might go some way to changing some of those really depressing stats, which have got worse during my career lifetime, not better. And a lot of the things that have kept us awake at night over the years from the gender pay gap to female entrepreneurs having more of a chance are motivators, but it's also unashamedly for profit. We really feel strongly that women need to get rich. They need to make money and need to invest their money in backing other women. And they need a better, bigger, more effective ecosystem. So that's all right. It's a small series of objectives, but that's what we're trying to do. (laughs) So, okay, so much to unpick there, but let let me take you back to the, you know, where are all the women and changing the way women work. So later this month, you are featuring as a panelist in our GDST event in partnership with the Women of the World Festival. You are going to speak on a panel on the theme of girls' power and change. Should we be teaching disruption or should we teach our girls how to play the game? It is a huge question. What's your gut reaction to that? Look, I have two daughters and a son. So this is a very live topic for me as a mother and it's a topic for me in business. Um, One of the key things for me is when I look back to my own upbringing and I'm lucky enough to be a GDST alum, as you know, My upbringing was extremely women-centric in that I was at an all-girls school from the age of three, and I'm a huge believer in girls-only education for my girls and girls in general. Um, And perhaps we can sort of talk about why I think that that that's important, as I know GDST does. But also, I'm from a matriarchy. You know, my grandmother and, and my mother ran their own businesses. And um, they wouldn't have called themselves entrepreneurs because that's quite a sort of grand word. But I think it did a couple of things. Firstly, it completely normalized working for yourself. I didn't know anybody at all in my extended family who had a conventional job. So when I look at my siblings, we all work for ourselves in some shape or form. And I worked in my last business with my brother and my sister as a psychotherapist, which has her own practice and buildings. And so something was in the water. But I think so much of it was you have to see it to be it as a girl. And I think one of the other things that I'm extremely grateful for with hindsight is we talked about money all the time. We talked about how you make money, how you save money, how you spend money. My mother said to me at a young age, because I have an extremely um, extended shoe wardrobe that, you know, you, you like nice things, so you better work hard to be able to afford them. And I'm kind of grateful for that sort of talk. And, and, and I'm very mindful of discussing that with my girls and my son. I think my children have a strange upbringing. You know, the, the other thing I've talked about a lot is I was a single mom with two very small children. That was most definitely not my plan A. My children have always been in and around work with me, partly because there was sort of no other way that I could figure out to do it. So they're very aware of the cadence of entrepreneurship, but also as a woman, how you have to show up in the world, whatever that means to you as a woman in your individual career. So they've seen me go to war for sure. You know, they've seen me win. They've seen me lose. They've seen things not work out. They've seen things be triumphs and disasters. And I think that's what we can do as parents is just be honest with our children about the world of work. As well as my daughter, I'm very conscious of my son. I've got an extremely feminist 13 and a half year old son. Brilliant. Yeah, quite. Yeah, he's got no choice. Feels very strongly about the world of work needing to be a level playing field because they've heard me churn these stats over the years. But I I hope that that equips them to do battle. And let's be clear, you, you do have to do battle, you know, not just with men, but with life. I think the, the sort of final 
exclamation mark on Albright that I hope they pick up on if our children ever sort of really listen to us is that I think it's very consistent to be celebratory of women without being anti-men. And that's really in the DNA of Albright. And I think that is really critical as well, that can celebrate everything it means to be a woman, can be an authentic woman in business. There's no one way to be a woman in business. I think that that's another big lesson to girls actually that you don't have to be the mousy one, you know, who stands up and wants to be counted all the time. There are some amazingly successful introverted women who have had phenomenally successful career. There's, there's every flavor, right? And I think that that matters as well, that we really mm-hmm. emphasize to our girls that there's no one way to do it. But you absolutely need to be comfortable talking about thinking about money and talking about and thinking about your own career. It's interesting what you say about money because it is a recognised statistic, isn't it, that that women tend to engage less with money within the household than their husbands, which is very disempowering. And you've spoken about that in the past, haven't you? I think money is power and knowledge is power. And I am consistently um, concerned by the number of amazingly successful women in my own peer group of my vintage who leave money to their husbands. I think we need to make sure that's not the case for our daughters. And that means having some really boring conversations with them about pensions and mortgages because, I've, you know, they've got children's ices that I've invested in over time. And you forget that they sort of get the reports on how they're performing. And it's really important that they understand the responsibility of money and how it gets made and what happens. I think also ensuring that girls are as interested in innovation around money and technology that drives innovation as boys. Again, I observe that amongst my own children. I'm building my crypto wallet of NFTs with my son at the moment. And it's really interesting to see how in his boys' school environment, they discuss that a lot. I mean, Noah's coming home with tips about investing in crypto punks or whatever. And my daughter isn't. You know, we we really need to make sure that girls aren't being left behind around innovation and the conversations that happen for them with their peers. And, and if we've got to accelerate that through having conversations at home, then I think that that's our role to be aware of the fact that that stuff emerges really early. It's interesting to hear you talk about many different personalities that female leaders have that you know they are not kind of identical and that you can be yourself and be a successful women leader but it's interesting hearing you talk about women being perceived as the mouthy one i mean do you think that disruptive women are heeded less because they are likely to be seen as troublemakers you know if you look at that very well publicized research into Heidi versus Howard. It was the same person, but people were, felt warmer towards the man than they did the women, for example. Is that still the case? Is that your experience? I think I'm probably a bit of a troublemaker on a good day. I think it is all about how we define our terms. So I think that my own route through life is to stand for something. I feel that's really important in what gives me energy. And I think life needs to be lived through what gives you energy. And I think that I've got to a position in my life, in my career now, where most of the time, if I say something, then people listen. So I need to be mindful about what I talk about and how I deploy my own powers of persuasion and amplification. So I think that there's a really, really important role to be vocal, even if sometimes that's a bit uncomfortable. But I think what I really meant by it was, and I really see this exemplified in my excellent business partner. We have a lot of similarities in that we've both got a very sort of dark sense of humor and we really recognize the importance of a gin and tonic at the end of the day, but we are actually very different personality wise. And she is the exemplar of soft power. 
in the way that she is extremely effective and I am much more likely to bang the table. And I think that women can also make great partners for one another. And I think that there are different ways to get there. So I guess that's my point. What I don't want to happen is, you know, I've, I've always been pretty A-type and I've been A-type academically and that's my style. And I've never sort of been backwards and coming forward, but there are many women of very different varieties who are extremely effective, successful, goal-driven and can achieve. You know, it's that, that, and I really see that in my role um, at Albright and as an investor in female entrepreneurs, they come in many different flavors and we should celebrate that and make sure that they are all telling their very different types of stories. Mm, Absolutely. You recently published your book, Believe, Build, Become, How to Supercharge Your Career. Talk me through the title. And also, can I ask, is it aimed at both women and men? You know, you're talking about your your lovely son, for example, and the need to have, you know, so-called man-ambassadors. Yeah, I mean, I think we, we give a bit of a tribute in the forward to the enlightened men who have helped us on the way and continue to help us. And, and that's a very important part of our success. I mean, without them, we wouldn't be here because that stems from some of the many systemic issues around gender pay gap, which leads to a gender savings gap, which means that if your job as an entrepreneur is to raise capital, it's harder to raise it from women. I think that it's an important part of my job to be good at asking men for money. And, um, that's a particular skill, right? You know, and to really land the economic argument of backing women, women led businesses deliver 35% better returns than male led businesses, like full stop. And everything that I touch, I also have a sort of side, um, hustle as an advisor to McKinsey and just looking at some of their recent data about the businesses that they work with and support that female led businesses outperform male led businesses, right? So we've got to win the economic Mm. argument. The book's a guide for women. It's a career guide for women. It was the world's worst essay crisis. I think we sort of had this idea that it would just emerge or it would be ghostwritten. But I mean, believe me, we wrote every single word ourselves. And we had a deadline of New Year's Eve and I was overseas and so was AJ, but we're in very different time zones. So we sort of slid into the collective deadline with uh, sort of a minute to spare. It's meant to be a practical guide for women and girls. And one of the sort of key messages throughout the book is this okay to work really hard at something. Like Anna and I, it looks like we just sort of show up and everything's perfect. And I think we say over and over again in the book, we game and rehearse absolutely everything we ever do. It's okay to really have to work hard and rehearse before you turn up to something and we do. That's what it exists to do. So we've had lots of men buy the book, read the book, work through the book. Of course, many of the topics in there are utterly gender universal. Like we all need to know how to negotiate. But we've got one dog in the fight and that is women. (laughs) So everything that we do is centered towards how to upskill women to have the, the careers that they want to have. Yeah. One of the things that stuck with me from the book is how you say we meticulously game every meeting, which does imply the need to play the game. And as you've just said, you know, so much of this is about needing to get the best out of the people that you speak to. And many of the people you speak to are men from whom you need to get funding. So actually, if you are reframing this to say that, you know, playing the game can be very empowering because it allows you to play to your strengths in order to get what you want, it's very different from the idea of having to go cap in hand and and, and pander to somebody's ego. 
I think there's a power to preparation. I mean, look, a lot of that preparation is for men, but we also engage with everybody, whether that's our team, whether it's our community. Like we don't, we don't believe in winging it because I don't think you're most effective in that way. So, you know, the joke between Anna and I is always, if you said to me, counting down, you're on news at 10 and you've got to talk about biros. I can do that, right? Because that's just my sort of weird superpower. But it's certainly not her. She hates it. But you'd never know now. She's really, really good at it because we've just practiced. And we have so many different stakeholder engagements in any given day, whether that's with our board, whether it's with the media, whether it's with our community, whether it's with suppliers, whether it's with our team in different countries, with different motivations. You have to plan what you're going to say based on what do you want to get out of the conversation? And also, how do you make them feel good? You know, we're, we're very focused on that. You know, and I, I do another sort of spiel where I talk about three Gs, I think that's in the book, and the importance of grace. But that, that's the thing that's sometimes really hard when you're really busy or when things are really awful. And the last few years for everybody listening to this have been extremely challenging. And if you are operating a business where a component of your revenue, big component is having physical spaces open when they're shut, that is really not a lot of fun. So how do we show up graciously? And AJ and I speak every morning when I walk back from boxing on the phone and she's just done the school drop. We've got our routine and we say, what have we got on today? Okay, what's the key message for so-and-so? How do we, and every big call we script. It's just how we do it. That is very empowering. You know, it makes you feel more in control. Also, if you're a bit in the public eye and you stand for women and GDST know this, then sometimes the, the light can shine on you in a way that isn't always pleasant, right? So there's a power in preparation. And also we are a double act. We divide and conquer. We've got different skills. We tag team. So we script who does what and who says what. That's our routine. And I think it just makes the really difficult things more manageable. And of course, things don't always go to script. But if you're really clear about what you want to get about out of every engagement, how you want to make people feel, then I think it doesn't feel like going cap in hand. It feels like you're controlling the dialogue, even when mm. conversations are hard. Absolutely. Let's go back to what you were saying about women entrepreneurs not getting funded as readily as their male counterparts. I hadn't realized that women tend not to invest in women either. Why is this? And how has that affected you as a woman and a female entrepreneur in your time? Women have got less money than men, right? So we, we need to be really clear about that because if there's a gender pay gap, which is very, very marked, that means that there's a gender savings gap. So th there's just a de facto women have got less money. I think the second thing is an awareness point. So in the UK, there are, there are some tax efficient ways that you can invest in high growth businesses, young businesses. Women are so much less aware of them than men are. And actually, that's a, a campaign that I'm running off the back of Alison Rose, um, who's the female CEO of NatWest, her review into female entrepreneurship. And I'm on the board of that review. And we're running a campaign during the course of the year to get more women backing women, angel investing in women. So I think it's about education. As ever, it's about network. There are quite a lot of these angel investment syndicates around and women are less likely to be part of them. But I think we need to showcase amazing female talent to other women. And Albright can, can do that to some extent and take that out on the road, if you like, outside of London. So we run our female founders pitch days, which are there every month to say, here are six amazing female entrepreneurs, back them. And we're constantly trying to educate women on how they can do that. Part of the reason to do it is when I sold my last, the business before this love home swap, 
Um, and I had raised venture capital investment from a very well-known VC. And when I was speaking to them afterwards about Albright and explaining what one of the things that we were setting out to do was to get more women invested in, this was four years ago. And they said, we'd love to invest in more women. We just don't see any, like we've only ever really seen you. <laughs> so we have a responsibility to showcase female talent every day of the week. So that no male investor can ever say, I just don't see them. You know, it's like, well, come into our building or look on our digital platform. They're on there. And we've got to shift some of those statistics because the pandemic has made it worse. As ever, it's really complicated. So what happened during the pandemic affected everybody, but women bore more of the mental load than men. I, I get into trouble for this because I did say on national television, something like not in every household, but in mine. And my husband was really annoyed about it, but it's sort of true. I think that our association with childcare has been made ever closer, um, ever more public. I interviewed um, the absolutely indomitable GDST parent, actually, Gina Miller, about this. And, and that was sort of her take on it, is that we, we've been very much more visibly connected with childcare. And um, there's a very open question about hybrid work and what that means for women. And whether it is helpful for women to not physically be in the room. And I would feel very concerned about a world of work where women are not physically in the room because we're leaning more towards um, what can indeed give us much more flexibility. So I think flexible working can be a double-edged sword. People tend to resort to gender norms. And, and the example I would give of that is... In the UK, there was a piece of crisis funding put in place called the Future Fund, which was a way of further supporting venture capital-backed businesses in the UK during the pandemic. And it was sort of emergency funding. And how was it put together? It was 13 men in a room. Couldn't kind of think of one single woman that they might invite in. And without being too technical, the way that the, the vehicle was constructed was not very female-friendly because it, it was... Um, venture debt that needed to be match funded. In other words, without going into the sort of detail of it, it excluded some of the more generally female-led businesses that had not raised professional venture capital, but were more angel investor backed. So nobody had put women at the heart of that decision-making process because it was a crisis and they put it together in four days. And so is that sort, none of that's a criticism, it's, a, it's an observation. So I think we need to make sure that the pandemic does not set women back. We need to be very aware of some of the consequences of hybrid working. We need to show, physically show up and be heard. There's loads of data about the fact that women are less heard on Zoom calls than they are physically. And we need to double down on showcasing female talent and encouraging more women to understand their money and back other women. In each episode of Raise Her Up, we hear from a member of our GDST family to gain their perspective on the matter at hand. Today, we hear from Year 13 student Tyler Ray Fatoyinbo from Sydenham High School. Hello, I'm Tyler Ray, head girl at Sydenham High School. I'm hoping to study PPE at university next year, and I'm very excited to explore my love of current affairs and the framework of society further. As a young black woman, I'm interested in the future status of women in the workplace and the evident divide between men and women in multiple aspects of society, but especially in positions of power. 
I'm excited about so much of my future, for example, exploring a new professional environment, getting more independence and having the opportunity to work in the field of politics or business that I hope will allow me to work to benefit and shape society. However, I'm also faced with the potential barriers of being a woman in a professional environment. In the GDST school, I've learned to be confident and to be proud of my achievements. But I know that research shows that when women are confident and not afraid to question their colleagues, they can be called aggressive or arrogant. However, when men act the same way, they are praised. I do believe society is shifting in terms of improved attitudes towards sexual and racial equality, but significant obstacles and frequent microaggressions still exist, which can have a negative impact on women's mindset, motivation and progress in work and society. Again, as a young woman, I face the potential conflict between being a woman and having a family and meeting goals for professional success. One could ask whether the increase and greater tendency towards hybrid and flexible working will make this easier for women in the future, or if more still needs to be done by bosses and by both women and men to overcome this potential barrier. 50% of the UK population is female, yet we only take up 8% of CEOs of the top 100 firms. Why is this? Does it link back to women taking time out of their careers to have and raise children and men not making similar sacrifices? It also makes me wonder whether seeing the small numbers of women in leadership positions may reduce the confidence of young women like me to aspire to these positions. At the same time though, the current situation as it stands also inspires me and I'm sure many other girls to strive to make a change to this statistic. I think it's also important to highlight the importance of cooperation and allyship between men and women. This is a societal issue which in turn demands a collaborative societal shift from all parties and men can make a huge difference by being active allies for gender equality. Uh, let me ask you, women like yourself who are mothers and successful professionals are often asked, you know, how do you do it? You know, and, and how you model this idea of equal opportunity and shared domestic responsibility in your own home. I'm not going to ask you how you do it. What I am going to ask you is, is this part of the problem? Should we stop asking women and start asking men? That's probably the question Anna and I get asked more than any other question. It's really hard, right? You neither want to make it sound too easy nor too hard. So it's very hard to know where to land it. And also you don't want to sound completely nuts, right? And it is a bit nuts, some of the stuff that I do. And I'm not sure it translates terribly well to telling other people and certainly not telling other people they need to do it in the same way or unless they do it how I do it, they're not going to succeed. There are loads of different ways of approaching it. It's often a three-legged stool and you've got, you know, your work, your family, your friends. I very rarely have all three legs of the stool on the ground at once. And I think that you just get used to that. What Anna and I talk about more, we talk about work-life blend. And again, this makes me sound a bit mad. I really love what I do. Even when I hate it, I love it. And so does AJ. So we are very happy to riff on work. We'll get really excited about things like all the time. And that's why she's an amazing partner in crime for me because she's very happy to receive a stream of consciousness, a load of WhatsApps at five in the morning. She just turned her phone off, by the way. So that's how we do it because that's what gives us energy. Of course, there are days where it's a total disaster and there's been some stuff, but what gives me energy 
is standing for something. So that's just a really important part of my DNA. I'm feeling like I'm making progress and I'm spending time with people who are radiators. They give me energy because they've got brilliant ideas or they're young or it's different mm. or it's a thing. And that's the buzz for me, kind of always has been. So, you know, someone's unlikely to ask my husband, how does he do it? He's a surgeon. He's got three children because <laughs> there's no expectation that that's a thing for him in the same way. But I just feel like if you can combine doing the things that give you energy with having some sort of purpose to your life, it will all be a lot easier whilst recognizing that there'll be days where none of the legs of the stool are on the ground. And that's also just life. Mm. Yeah. There's been there's been a lot an awful lot recently um, about recent events that have highlighted the enduring issue of um, violence against women and girls. So the murders of Sarah Everard, Sabina Nessa, Ashley Murphy, for example. Has this had an impact on the way people engage with your network? Do you feel that there is more need than ever to have a platform in which women can come together and experience solidarity and power? It's a difficult one. Do I feel there's more need than ever? What definitely happens and where Albright serves a really important purpose is when there are terribly tragic events like that, when all of us feel, how is this happening and how can this be happening? And, you know, the, the two Wembley murders as well, but particularly, you know, the Sarah Reverard stuff hugely resonated, didn't it? And it did with Londoners and it definitely did with my team. A lot of my young team live in Clapham and we can't underestimate the need for solace and support. And for space for women to talk to other women about how they're feeling, whether that's sad or angry and a force for mobilization of opinion and, you know, solutions. There are many times in our lives and in modern history where I genuinely feel like we need the sisterhood, whether it's horrible, tragic events like that, whether it's Me Too, whether it's any of these sort of global events um, around Black Lives Matter, where we need to turn to our community and ask the questions and look for help, support and action, which is what Albright's very focused on. So it's kind of hard to say whether we need it more in those times than we need it. Of course, there are moments when the light shines, but I think my genuine point is that sisterhood really matters. And we talk about that in the book, that the enlightened men who are with us on our journey are hugely important and that finding your tribe and being able to turn to your tribe when you need support around the micro and the macro is really part of what gives you back to this mm. point energy in life. And I think if Albright can do that and provide that and continue to provide that for women, then that's one of the really important reasons why we exist. Okay. So my final question for now today, <laughs> what do you think are the the key attributes that young people need when they're entering today's workplace. And I, I, I'd say young people rather than young women, because obviously young men will need to develop certain skills, including perhaps a knowledge and desire to be allies to their female counterparts. What do you think? We're lucky enough at Albright to work with some really amazing young people, both in our team and across our community. I think what they all have in common is an energy and optimism and can-do attitude that um, really enables them to make a difference. And I think all of those things are very universal. I think that they are turning up in the world of work and changing the world of work, and they're extremely flexible and being a change agent is something that they can really bring to the table. Um, my life lesson always is a really basic one. This is what I say endlessly to my children, which is get up early. <laughs> I honestly think that there's a big 
a life lesson for younger people about turning up and being there and being present and learning all of the lessons that they can learn, but also recognizing what they can bring to the table. I think to this point on being around situations that give you energy and make you feel optimistic and make you feel that there's a way to change the world. And so much of that comes from spending time with young people, which I'm really lucky to do and, and you know want to spend the rest of my life doing. Debbie, thank you so much for being with us, for sharing your expertise, experience, insight, and for doing so with such optimism and energy as well. It's been really, really fantastic to have you here today. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Believe, Build, Become, How to Supercharge Your Career by Debbie Wasco and Anna Jones is out now. And Debbie will be a panellist in our debate around girls' power and change, hosted by the GDST at the Women of the World Festival later this month. Thank you for listening to this episode of Raise Her Up from the GDST. To hear all the experts we have on this series and to make sure you don't miss one, please subscribe on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Amazon, Google, or wherever you get your podcasts. Also, if you could leave a review and a five-star rating, it'll help other parents and carers to find the podcast so they can listen and learn too. I'm Cathy Walker. Join me for the next episode of Raise Her Up when I'll be with journalist, author and sustainable fashion expert, Lauren Bravo. Let's start with the environmental stuff. So fashion is one of the most polluting industries on the planet. It has a carbon footprint that is bigger than aviation and shipping combined. If we fix fashion, it would make an enormous difference. The worst offenders, I would say, who sort of score badly across all categories would be... I'll see you then.